morning. I'm Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. This morning, I'm really pleased to be joined by Benedict Evans, live from London. Good, good afternoon, Benedict. It's great to have you. Hello there. So, uh, Benedict, you've had a, a few, cha- you know, few kind of life changes. Uh, well, I guess everyone's had a lot of life changes, but you in particular, uh, if I can brag a little bit about you, uh, were a partner at Andreessen for many years. And then somewhat recently, you have now gone back to London. You've joined with Entrepreneur First. So I'm, I'm doing a bunch of things. So I'm spending um, some time as a venture partner at Mosaic Ventures in London. And I'm also spending a little bit of time with Entrepreneur First and with a couple of other organizations in the sort of startup community. And I'm doing a bunch of other projects around um, sort of helping people work out what's going on in a bunch of different ways. You also have a great newsletter here. Uh, at ben-evans.com. You've been doing the newsletter for, what, seven plus years now? You've got over 100,000 people that are on that. Yeah, I started at the beginning of 2013. So not new as newsletters go, but sort of before the current wave of newsletters. And yeah, it seems to grow in a straight line ever since. There's 150,000 people who subscribe to it, which always kind of gives me imposter syndrome every time I send it out. But apparently some people find it useful, so I keep doing it. Yeah, I know it's 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 quite fantastic. I've been a, a longtime follower and and uh, an avid reader of 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 what you've been been publishing. You know, both either with the professional firm you've been with or or personally. So wonderful to have you on this morning. There's sure. certainly a lot of lot of activity of of late. I mean, just namely, we've got TikTok and Arm that are in the news. Uh, now, when I say in the news, I mean. What's been very difficult for me personally is to read a variety of different, you know, tr- what you would call traditional news sources, trying to report on the topic of tech and and what is right or what is wrong and what's really going on here. Um, I I have just continued to be kind of flummoxed by getting good news sources that are out there. Do you share the same sentiment in terms of how has the media been able to actually kind of catch us up on on what's going on with recent kind of current tech events? Well, there's a sort of specific and a general answer here. I mean, I think the challenge around the TikTok process is that it's a, a chaos mixed in with shambles mixed off in with kind of grotesque incompetence. So it's kind of difficult to report that all the reporters can kind of do is try and report on chaos. Um, I mean, I think there's a, you know, you kind of go sort of up to the sort of the 100,000 for a view. There's a... Um, there's sort of a fundamental shift in, in the nature of technology and technology reporting in sort of the last 10 years in that in, 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 it wasn't very long ago that technology was actually not an important part of most people's lives. You know, when, when Bill Gates was on every magazine cover, Microsoft's actual business was selling accounting tools to big companies. And, you know, Amazon, you know, we had the dot-com bubble and then it crashed and everyone thought, thank God, we can just forget about tech now and stop paying attention to that. And it's all gone away. And in sort of the last 10 years, and then really, I suppose, in the last five years, um, technology sort of became systemically important to society. Um, there's about five and a half billion adults on Earth and about four billion people have got a, a smartphone. And my favorite statistic here is that in 2017, 40% of all new relationships in the USA started online, so four zero percent And so this stuff has gone from being sort of exciting and interesting 
and maybe thought of something that your children should learn about at school to being a central part of everybody's lives um, very, very quickly, like much more quickly than like cars or aircraft or electricity, um, and yet equally important. And so sort of journalism around technology um, sort of went from covering the product and the industry gossip um, to suddenly having to cover like elections in Myanmar. And so there's been a sort of, I mean, if you think about sort of coverage of other industries, like, you know, you have people who review new cars, and those aren't the same people who write about, you know, Nissan, um, Renault's merger, who are also not the same people who write about, like, redesigning car cities around bike lanes. And yet technology somehow is all of, you know, those are like, kind of, we kind of understand, those are all like kind of different conversations. And you can like be a great car journalist without having to have an opinion on bike lanes. Um, or having to have an opinion on Tesla's capital structure. And yet in technology, all of this stuff sort of happened very quickly and became very big and very important for everybody very quickly. And I think we're all scrambling to catch up with that. Um, and I think, you know, coverage of this is also, frankly, scrambling to catch up with that. And it's doing that, obviously, in the context of something of a moral panic, particularly around social media and quote-unquote big tech, whatever that means. Um, and um, some of which is well-founded, some of which is nonsense, um, as is the nature of moral panics. Um, and so we're all sort of scrambling to work out how we talk about this um, and how we cover it and how we write about it. They're, they're certainly struggling. That is, that is for sure. I mean, if, if we just double-click on this ARM topic, right? I mean, it's not your traditional software tech, which we'll talk a lot about on the show. But what was interesting to me is deals announced Sunday. Boom, right away, you've got not one, but two founders saying, hey, there's real concerns here about should the UK allow this? Or at the very least, if it is approved, there should we should have restrictions on it, right? To, to help make sure that jobs stay in the UK, to help ensure that Britain has some strong kind of trade bargaining power with the United States. Um, you know, and you, you draw you draw that line of comparison to what's going on with TikTok uh, and, you know, the United States, India to a certain extent. Do you see similarities there between this idea of kind of tech protectionism now coming to more Western uh, democracies? Yeah, I think I, I kind of unpick this. I think there's, there's, there's two kind of very, very distinct issues here. I mean, one of them is there's a sort of sensitivity in the UK around um, creating kind of very important primary technology and it's sort of getting bought and leaving the country. And so you saw sort of sort of the same thing with the Google acquisition DeepMind, for example, a couple of years ago. Um, and why aren't we creating big, you know, big giant trillion dollar tech companies in Europe? So that's sort of one um, strand within that. There's also, frankly, a whole bunch of other conversations around the ARM acquisition around sort of, you know, anti there's an antitrust question and, you know, sort of sense of what happens if, if, if ARM technology is no longer sort of Switzerland, but instead becomes part of a lot of the company that, that competes with a lot of its customers. Um, there's a bunch of interesting conversations around ARM really for more for a semi, semiconductor analyst than me, frankly. I think the TikTok thing is much more sort of, a, you know, it's, I think there's much more sort of profound geopolitical questions in here because, um, I mean, I wrote about this the other day that you know, if you go back to like the Sputnik panic, um, and ever since then, the USA has had this sort of very strong idea that it should kind of be a kind of a global leader in technology, um, particularly because people sort of looked at Sputnik and thought, oh my God, they could drop atom bombs on us. Um, but there's a sort of the sense that America should be a global leader in technology, and by and large, it sort of has been. And there was a brief panic in the sort of 80s around Japan, 
Um, but that, A, faded away pretty quickly. B, Japan is, when all said and done, half the size of the USA. It's half the population. So if Japan gets as rich as America, well, it'll be half the size. I mean, same per capita GDP, it'll be sort of half the size of America. Um, and also, like, you know, for all that, you know, VCRs and, you know, TVs and Walkmans are really cool. Like, they're not, like, a means for influencing elections um, or, you know, spying on people. You know, they're just TVs. You know, they weren't really anything more than that. Um, same with cars, in a sense. Um, whereas now China poses a geopolitical threat to the USA, and there's a sort of, sort of plausible argument that says on a sort of 2050 to 2100 view, China will be, you know, a larger economic and military power than the USA on any basis. I mean, today, econ economists argue a lot about what GDP, Chinese GDP really means, but like, all things being equal, you know, if China doesn't screw up, then in 50 or 100 years, China should be bigger than America in the same way that America is bigger than Britain or Germany, because like you've got way more people and you're a much bigger country. And there's a sort of anomaly of the last hundred years in which the USA was the biggest economy because India and China, despite having more people, were not industrial economies and that normally may be over. And so there's a sort of a moment of, oh my God, during the headlights moment, a, a sort of reaction to that in the USA. Um, and you see that in all sorts of fields. I think the, when you then apply that to something like Huawei or Tencent or TikTok, you have this sense of, well, hang on a second, this is something that's being basically controlled by the Chinese government, and any Chinese company is ultimately China, controlled by the Chinese government. And it's in our country, and it's important in some way. And so Huawei, you know, theoretically, you can use telecoms equipment for espionage, but it's also like, do you want a piece of primary infrastructure dependent on the goodwill of the Chinese state? I mean, it's like if the only electricity transformers you could buy came from China, you wouldn't actually be worried about spying. You'd be worried about them just like not selling you any next year. Um, and then you have a major problem. Um, the same thing, you know, Tencent is a great, is a huge, um, is a panopticon and a censorship, censorship system. So Tencent, there's obviously kind of questions around, well, not Tencent, but WeChat. Um, and TikTok, and you can look at it and say, well, look, it's just, you know, it's just videos. You know, it's YouTube on mobile. It's better YouTube on mobile. It's YouTube 2.0, which is sort of, it's not a social network, actually. There's no messaging in there. They don't really know who you are. You know, they're not reading your email, and on an iPhone, they can't read your email. Um, but on the other hand, like if YouTube was for sale, would you, what would you think about the Chinese government or Chinese company buying YouTube? What would you think about net Chinese company buying Netflix? Which again, you know, the Chinese, if, what would you think if the Chinese government had indirect control over Netflix or indirect control over Viacom, say? And the US doesn't let foreign citizens own US TV stations, which is why Rupert Murdoch had to um, convert to American citizenship, which of course meant that he then wasn't able to create a wildly populist TV news station that would kind of have a major influence <laughs> on US democracy. Um, and so like, there's reasons why, like real reasons why one would worry about this stuff. And I think some of the initial reaction in the US, indeed, frankly, in the US tech press, was sort of, this is just Trump being an idiot again. Mm -hmm. And there's certainly a layer to that, and certainly the way the process was handled was you know, not anybody's idea of good government or due process or anything else. Um, but I think people's eagerness to go to, to think about Trump sort of masks them to how much China has changed in the last five to ten years and what it means to say China would own this now as opposed to what it might have meant to say China owns this five or ten years ago. Um, and so Absolutely. At the core of it, there's a sort of a real concern there. I think, and I'll, I'll sort of say one more thing and then sort of pause, pause for breath, but I think the other challenge here is um, it's not like TikTok is, going, is the only one. There's going to be 10 more of these things. They may not even be Chinese, but presumably for the sake of argument, they are. It's like there's eight or 900 million people in China with a smartphone now. 
more people in China have a smartphone than in the USA and Western Europe combined. And there's an awful lot of software innovation in China. And so like the next cool thing might be in America, but it might not. And so how do you think in a sort of systemic, repeatable way about the next cool thing that all American teenagers or all British or all German or Spanish or Brazilian teenagers want to use coming from North America? Might be Turkish, might be Indian, might be Vietnamese, probably Chinese. You need a kind of a rule for the next 10 of these. You can't just kind of fire off ad hoc executive orders over each one. You need to think in a kind of systematic way. Well, what do we think about a world in which our teenagers are using stuff that doesn't come from our country? And of course, the irony, of course, is that everyone else in the world has had to deal with that for 25 years. It's just that it was American. And you're seeing a whole other side of this, which is, you know, Europeans and Australians and Japanese and everybody else going on. The last 25 years, we kind of let America, we let the internet run on by default on American rules. And now that doesn't work anymore because it's important. And so we're going to have our own rules around how this stuff works. And that's kind of the other side of the kind of the TikTok story is, you know, what the EU part rules, the EU or the UK or Australia parts. And so we moved from like a world that was where it was theoretically a global internet, but in practice it was a San Francisco internet that everybody else used, <laughs> to a world in which everybody else sets their own rules too. Yeah, I mean, okay, there's a, there's a lot there. I think we're we're gonna we're gonna get to Europe in a second on this. It's gonna it's gonna come full circle. But you know, that's the interesting thing, right? You're making the points here, and 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 going back to the point about the media, right? It just this is the stuff that's just kind of confusing yet frustrating to me is. Um, you know, you've got smart people. You've got Larry Summers saying, well, I don't really know if Huawei is, you know, is using their tech maliciously, or I don't really know if there's a linkage between the CCP and what TikTok is doing, right? And there's just this kind of like, it's it's like a desired naivete that, that you know, oh, well, I, there's no absolute proof of this, even though I think actually there is absolute proof of it. But everyone wants to kind of turn the blind eye and I think you hit it on the head, right? There is an inherent linkage between any large tech business, whether it's hardware tech, Huawei, software tech, Tencent, uh, you know, WeChat, uh, Alibaba. I mean, we've seen we've seen just in the past few years a myriad of examples of where the CCP wields its power through these large tech businesses, and that they're absolutely an extension of the Chinese Communist Party. And you would say, oh, well, what's wrong with that? Well, the problem with what's wrong with that is when you have a totalitarian communist government that uses technology basically as a dragnet to police its citizens and enforce its will upon its country and, you know, its influence abroad. There's a, there's a, there's a disconnect there, right, between how you would want to allow private enterprise to operate but and and the value that comes from platforms, you understand the value that pl- comes from platforms better than anyone else, right? That value starts to get polluted and diluted very quickly when used in the hands of a government to kind of enforce its political will. That's kind of one point. The other point is um, that there's no reciprocity, right? Where a U.S. company can't go into China, we can't go launch a business there. Uh, and operate with any sort sort of freedom or are are even allowed to operate, right? So to me, it's those two things where I feel like the media and a lot of the commentary on, you know, TikTok, uh, Tencent ban is is saying, well, what's going to happen? You know, is every foreign company going to have an issue operating in the United States? And I think that's where the media trips up over itself. It's if you really just look at what's going on with China to begin with, 
where you have a massive tech community there, a massive VC community, very smart, brilliant entrepreneurs that are hustling and building great companies. Um, but there is no reciprocity and you have this challenge between CCP linkage and these now large kind of monopolistic tech companies. And so to your point, right, calling that into question and saying, no, there's now going to be rules around this uh, is appropriate. I think the challenge here is um, that you have to sort of presume a world in which there will be many apps that are not American anymore. And the U.S. has sort of operated by default without any regulation at all. Um, and so you have this sort of bizarre, slightly bizarre situation in which Apple is sort of America's privacy regulator by default. And California tries to and keeps messing it up. And then you have the EU passing rules as well, which get applied globally. Um, and, you know, the part of the, the challenge of the sort of the due process question around TikTok is you can't kind of point to a rule that it's breaking because you don't actually have any rules. Um, and if you were to say, well, you know, data have to stored in this way and algorithms have to be transparent in such and such a way, and, you know, if you actually kind of make a list of things, you, this is kind of, kind of my point. Either you just say, look, Americans aren't allowed to use foreign apps, which, you know, is what you do with TV stations, but that doesn't really seem, or newspapers, but doesn't really seem viable in the world of the internet. Or you say, well, actually, we're going to have to have, you know, a set of kind of repeatable rules. And you can say, well, then we can say, well, you have to follow this rule. And that rule might be, you know, the data has to be stored locally. And that's certainly, you know, the, the, the approach that the EU has taken, that you actually have to store data in the EU. Um, or it might be around transparency of recommendation systems or, you know, right to access your data. But, you know, you kind of, you kind of have to construct a set of rules that would apply to all of these things. Why is it foreign versus just Chinese, right? Well, why is it Chinese? Well, I mean, there's, there's, there's multiple layers in here because you could equally well argue that the stuff should be applied to Facebook. You know, there's a layer of concern that is specific to China. There's also a layer of concern, frankly, that isn't. Um, and then you're going to get into all sorts of really weird, like, well, this company is technically Vietnamese, but who really owns it? And so, like, I would get into Zoom because technically it's a U.S. company, but the, all the operations are in China. You need to get to something that's repeatable because you can't. It's not like it's not that there's only going to be one of these. You know, there may only be one TV station that's for sale this decade. So you can kind of do a process on that one buyer, but there's not only going to be one cool app on the App Store next year. If all Chinese apps were banned in the United States. Good or bad? Uh, I don't think that would be good for anybody. You just want to shut off American consumers' access to a whole layer of innovation, the vast majority of which has no kind of immediate issues at all. Isn't that basically what's happened to U.S. companies operate, wanting to operate in China for the past 20, 30 years? Well, no, it's happened to a tiny subset of U.S. companies in China. I mean, you could name them on the fingers of one hand. I mean, I mean, tech companies or, you know, yeah, yeah, tech larger software like, I, companies. You know, I think I could, you could name like maybe three or maybe four U.S. companies that can't operate in China on that basis. So, and, and, I, and either way, I mean, I don't think, um, you know, there's an old line about protectionism that just because somebody else puts a box in their harbor, that doesn't mean that you should put a box in yours. You know, clearly there's a bargaining position in there, but, you know, you're not going to bargain China into turning off censorship of the internet. So, you know, that's, you know, that's not a terribly productive position. Should the EU have done some level of tech protectionism 10, 20 years ago? Protect, well, protectionism against what? Against large tech monopolies coming in, right? I mean, I attribute a lot of China's tech community today because they had strong tech protectionism, right? Because there's a vacuum and you didn't have these large 
tech monopolies in there? I think that's an incomplete explanation. I mean, I think it's sort of productive to look, for example, at Japan, which does not have a firewall um, and does. I mean, well, let, let's sort of look at this as sort of a sort of a way of thinking about this systematically again, which is that you have some markets that have a places where you have a big domestic market. Um, and so you can create a quote unquote, a, a big either domestic champion or even a global champion. Um, and it's may and then it's then you ask, well, is it hard or easy to get in? And so Japan is whatever it is, 120, 160 million people. I can't remember now. Japan is, a bit, is half the size of the USA. It's a big market. Um, there's a whole bunch of kind of language, culture, business structure, or kind of operational structure issues where it make it very hard to just take a foreign business model and apply it. Some of that is deliberate protectionism. And yeah, you know, EU has protectionism. The US has an awful lot of protectionism. Most of it is actually like you can't sell an American fire engine in Tokyo because like it will just get stuck. And there's an awful lot of that. Like you actually just can't apply that business model directly in Japan because it's just different. Um, and um, I mean, I had a friend of mine work for a company that was deploying a kind of political software in Europe. And you had to explain very slowly in words of one syllable that actually, no, you can't ask Europeans whether they're Jews. <laughs> That's actually really profoundly not okay. And record that in a database in France or Germany. Let me explain <laughs> to you why you can't do that. Right. Um, and so, you know, yes, there's a bit of protection. It's, and most of it is just like, there's a country, it's just completely different. Um, and so the, my point is, therefore, you have big Chinese, Japanese internet companies. Most of those actually fail to go out to leave Japan because the market everywhere else is so different from Japan. In Europe, you have relatively small markets and it's relatively easy for a global giant to get in, which means you have some European, big internet, European internet companies, generally one per country. Um, you don't have kind of global giants, and the American giants got in quite easily. India is a sort of an interesting case because it's somewhere in between, in that it's bigger than Europe. It's not a billion people. It's like 150 million people for any kind of internet company. Um, and it's harder to get into, get into than Europe, but it's not as hard to get into as Japan. South Korea is also interesting here because it's kind of a smallish market, but it's also very hard to get into because it's, again, so kind of unique. And I think some of China is about the firewall, yes and about a bunch of other issues around that. But I think a lot of China is also like, it's just a completely different market. You know, um, there's the first tier cities and the third tier cities. And, you know, the, the third tier cities, nobody have never had organized retail. Like there aren't 150 years of department stores and supermarkets. Nobody has a bank account because they killed all the bankers and they don't have any banks. And, you know, like it's, you can't just take an American retail model and just do it in Japan, in, in China in the same way. And so I think quite a lot of the, um, the China thing is the firewall, but I think a lot of it is also, also like it's just a radically different market. This is also incidentally why Chinese internet companies have all completely failed to go overseas. There was this whole story like four years ago, that, oh my God, WeChat's going to take over the world. Like, no, it didn't. <laughs> because it was so specific to how the Chinese internet market worked. And they tried to launch all the way across Africa and all the West Europe and completely failed. Um, for the same reason that 20 years ago, all these Japanese consumer companies trying to launch everywhere completely failed because the product was designed for Japan. And the, you know, the engine the, and the product team that comes to Britain or South Africa phone up the office in Japan, in this case, because all the WeChat people in India phoned up people in China and they couldn't get anyone's attention because what was going on in China was always so much more important than anything they were trying to do in India. <laughs> I mean, all this kind of point is sort of getting to is, you know, you sort of started by asking about protectionism. Like, I think there is an element of protectionism to TikTok, clearly. There's also an element of protectionism to things like GDPR. But there's, I think, much more profound is just like the sort of the Westphalian point that like it's our country and we decide what the rules are. And the fact that you built this based on what people at the EFF and Berkeley think, like, I don't care. 
And, you know, you come to us and say, well, we're not doing that because the Second Amendment says, and I'm like, well, which one's the Second Amendment? Is that the one that says you're allowed to own a machine gun? Is that the one that says black people are worth two thirds of a white person? Is that the one about, like, I don't care what it is. We have our own rule of laws here. Thank you very much. <laughs> and I think Americans sometimes don't quite understand that and think that it's all protectionism. And mostly it kind of isn't. It's like, it's our country. And everyone in our country is using this stuff now. So we have rules. Yeah. Look, I mean, I'm not going to be able to oversimplify it and capture it in one point, but I would say you, you, you are echoing some of the points that I think it's one parcel of a broader picture, but I would say generally we've seen protectionism, you know, on the West help engender a stronger tech community and uh, over on the East in Europe, you know, I, I think they could have benefited from a little bit more of that. And GDPR, I, I like your term on GDPR as an own goal, um, you know, where GDPR, I actually think um, Facebook and Google should be kissing the feet of the European legislators because GDPR just killed off their smaller competition or made it much harder for the smaller competition to compete. And that post GDPR, Google and Facebook had a bigger share of European advertising dollars. And everywhere else, because GDPR, GDPR effectively applies globally. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's two things here. I mean, one of them is that there is a, well, we can kind of come back to this, a European, there was a European attitude to privacy and data and your ownership of your data that can sometimes seem very alien in the USA. I mean, a kind of very small kind of microcosm. I remember going to a bar in San Francisco and I just moved there and the guy asked to see my driving license. I mean, I don't look like I'm 19 anymore. And I kind of looked this up and realized that they're scanning that against a national database run by a private company. Like, do you have any idea how many different ways you would get sent to prison if you tried to do that in Europe? <laughs> and in America, it's just fine because it's not the government. So anyone else can fuck with your liberty any way they like as long as it's not the government. And so there's just kind of very profound cultural differences in what should be allowed within that. I think that's one thing. I mean, the second thing, you know, to the point of the, of the GDPR as being an own goal. Yeah, absolutely. And that's partly kind of massive regulatory arrogance. It's partly, frankly, a problem of unintended consequences. And so, you know, I was at a competition regulators conference at the beginning of this year, and one of them, the people from both Europe and kind of a bunch of other places, so Singapore and South Africa and Brazil and so on. And one of the comments was, like, we go to a company as a competition regulator and we say, you must do this. And the company then goes down the street to the privacy regulator and the privacy regulator says, you absolutely must not do that. And GDPR is kind of a perfect case study of this because you know, setting aside how effective you think it actually is, opposed to theoretically is in protecting privacy and all the kind of practical problems with actually complying with it, um, presume that all of that work, that it wasn't about competition. It was about privacy. It was about all sorts of random companies you've never heard of broking your data and sending it this, that, and the other way. It wasn't intended to say Google can't do that or Facebook can't do that with its own data. It was like I bought something on a website and now they sold it to my health insurance. It was that kind of a law. <laughs> and so this is sort of the inherent problem in both regulating technology, but frankly, this is like, it's like welcome to policy because all regulation is like this. There's always unintended consequences and trade-offs. I mean, the classic one that, you know, comes up a lot in America is that, you know, um, 50, 75, 100 years of public policy basically made it very hard for black people to buy homes um, and build that as a wealth creation, as an asset, what's the phrase, a um, wealth creating asset class. 
And so black people are shut out of that. Um, on the other side, houses are too expensive and we need house prices to come down. Well, fine, but you're going to need to pick one of those, at least one of those in each city. You can't both want house prices to go up and also want house prices to go down. And like that's how policy works. And we're still sort of halfway through that discussion in technology. We're still sort of, I mean, the analogy I often use here is um, like regulating the car industry, where, you know, you can go to GM and tell them that the cars have to be safer. Um, you can't go to them and say you have to make gasoline that doesn't burn. And we're still sort of having those conversations in technology where we're kind of, ex and you also can't tell them to fix parking. And like GM would kind of agree, yeah, parking's a problem, but like that's not on us. And the regulators, you know, presumably can understand how a car works much better than how Definitely. technology yeah. and the internet works. <laughs> They're still struggling on that. that. That's why if we go to antitrust, you know, for a second here, this is where I would give the EU. Um, I think, I, I mean, I would say the EU kind of has like a shotgun blast approach when it comes to antitrust. One of the things I like with this Miss Vestager uh, that I think she's on the right thread here is, and, and we kind of saw this in the, in the House uh, Judiciary Committee maybe a month or two ago, um, focusing on this relationship of uh, producers, you know, and, and, and saying that platforms, when they get to that monopoly size, they take advantage of the producers first. Um, would you agree with that sentiment and, and, and that direction in terms of kind of focus on antitrust? Uh, and, and do you think that that's directionally happening in Europe? I'd make a sort of a general observation and a sort of specific one. I think the general observation is, and this is probably an hour-long conversation in its own right, that antitrust in the USA and indeed regulation in general in the USA tends to be focused on crime. It tends to be, this is a law, you broke this law. Most obviously, does this break the Sherman Antitrust Act? So it's fascinating that Tim Wu was watching the, um, the hearing, and he said, that's a breach of the Sherman Antitrust Act. The Sherman Antitrust Act was written in 1890. I'd be surprised if there's like any laws still in, act, in action in Britain that were written in the 19th century. <laughs> it's just kind of convenient. It's like the inversion of the American self-image that Europe is all old and America is only now. Actually, America is all founded on laws written 75 years ago. And you've got these people pouring over them like Torah scholars. You know, is this, you know, does the app school break the Sherman Antitrust Act? And the European attitude is, who cares? Is it a problem? If it's a problem, we'll change it. And so the European, the US attitude is we'll look for law and this has the law been broken and then we'll go to court. And the European attitude is, is this an important market? Does it lack competition? Does a lack of competition cause you know, consumer harm? If it does, then how do we add more competition? What do we do to insert more competition? And that doesn't involve going to court or fining anybody necessarily. It may do, but it doesn't involve proving a crime. You just sit and do the analysis and say, well, we think it would be better if this market was more competitive. So we're just going to do this. Um, and that's a very alien attitude for Americans who are used to thinking in terms of finding a law that's been broken. Um, Europe is just, okay, we'll just make a new law then. Sorry. Um, America doesn't really do laws anymore, which is a kind of a separate, separate conversation. Um, I mean, so that, I mean, that's a sort of the general sort of, sort of pretty profound kind of cultural difference in understanding what it is that you're looking at. Who do you think is harmed more, right? Is it, is it your average consumer or, or is it the suppliers? Well, so it's interesting. I mean, this is the other kind of philosophical difference, which is, has been coming out recently, is that the U.S. has sort of evolved this idea that the only thing you're looking for is low prices for consumers. 
and that's now being challenged. And the EU and, and the UK have much more generally had the view that competition is also an, is also an objective of itself because competition might produce new kinds of products or better experiences, and that even if that might result in different pricing structures, it's not necessarily automatically a good thing. And so you have, I mean, very obviously, we had this case around ebooks sort of five or six years ago, where the it's still everyone who was involved in the publishing industry still say that it was all nonsense, and they just had to settle because they didn't have a choice, which is another point about the U.S. legal system. Um, but they still say it was just not true. But the the DOJ's case was the publishers got together to try and create more competition in the market by raising prices. So if there were more prices, if the prices were higher. You could have more competition because you wouldn't all be squeezed out by Amazon's low prices. So more competition comes with high prices. That was the DOJ's theory of harm. More competition came with high prices, therefore bad. And the EU would not look at that and automatically say, well, that's therefore bad. The EU would say, well, maybe higher prices would be good if that meant more competition. And so, again, this is sort of a fundamental difference in the philosophy of what it is that you're trying to achieve. And, and of course, the mechanism for how you would get there, um, because, again, the, the U.S. mechanism was, was, was crime and the EU would not necessarily be, be finding crime there. I mean, you asked, you asked another question sort of within that, which was about this sort of if you're on a, on a platform, you can't compete on it kind of conversation. I think there's a sort of profound confusion in this. And I think there's two layers of confusion. The first one of them is. You've just banned Google Maps. You know, Apple, Google makes Android. You've just banned Google Maps. They're not allowed to make a Maps platform on, the, on, the, on, the, on that device. They're also not, there's no Gmail app allowed. No Search app allowed. No Maps app. No Photos app. In fact, no Google apps are allowed on that except maybe like a calendar or an address book. Um, this is, of course, the argument that we had 20, 25 years ago with Microsoft. You know, what are you allowed to include in Windows? Um, and clearly, often wasn't included in Windows. But this sort of logic, if you own the platform, you can't compete in it, would also, of course, ban Microsoft Office. Or it would force them to split Microsoft Office apart. You make this point really well, right? That it's, it's not about breaking up these companies. It's more about how do you regulate their operations? How do you fine-tune the operation, right? Yeah. So, so you've, you've had this conversation in the EU around app stores, which again is this crime versus regulation conversation. And the EU has passed a law which is sort of going through the implementation now phase that says there has to be an independent appeal process for the app store. And that's a very different question from like Apple isn't allowed to make a music service. Because when you get right down to it, like 98% of all the problems that occur on the app store are not because you're competing directly with Apple. Yes, there's Spotify. Yeah, maybe Kindle. You could argue that Fortnite competes with an Apple product, Apple Arcade, but that's really tenuous. It's a completely different kind of game. Um, but, you know, you go and talk to developers about their horror stories of the App Store, and it's not that they were making something that Apple did. It's just like something uh, the Apple App Store review process was all screwed up. And the rules keep changing. Um, and so it's not, it's not a competition problem. Yeah, I mean, the two general gripes, again, I'm overgeneralizing here, across all producers, whether you're a driver on Uber, a seller on Amazon, a website on Google Search, an app developer on Apple, is two biggest gripes. Hey, you penalized me. I need an independent way to challenge that because, you know, you didn't get the full story. You never listened to me. I have no way to rebut this. Yeah, it's not that they were trying to screw the, the, the complaint is mostly not that they're trying to screw you. The complaint is that their internal process failed. Exactly. And you need to give me an audience 
to make my side of the story because I don't even, in many of these, like Uber, right? I don't even get to talk to a human ever. But you need to give me that audience. It's like we have the police department and then we have a judge. And the purpose of the judge is to check whether the police have screwed up. And there's no exactly. There's, there's none of that separation in the app store, in Google search, in Facebook. Now, to be fair, none of this existed 10 years ago. And if you make all of this, and it's hard to scale, and if you make all of this public, then you create all sorts of opportunities for people to gain the system, um, including, of course, big newspaper companies and big software companies who would all love to gain the system. <laughs> so there's a challenge, and there's this not a naive idea. It's okay, they should just publish all the processes. Well, like, yeah, that might not be a great idea. Um, but that is sort of the core of it, is it's not a competition problem, it's an execution problem. Um, mm-hmm. I think, I mean, back to the sort of the, um, you know, you can't own the platform and compete in it, something like 30% of US grocery sales are own label. You get this sort of completely bizarre set of, you know, and the, the sort of, there's arguments where, like, I disagree, and I, but I understand what you're saying. There's arguments where, like, I agree and I think you're wrong, or maybe I might agree with you, or at least I, but I understand the argument. The argument Amazon should not have a private label is I just don't understand what the argument is. Like that's been a basic part of retail for 150 years. Like you go into Walgreens, they sell band-aids and they sell their own label band-aids. Are you banning that? Why? And if you're going to ban it on Amazon, why aren't you banning it on Amazon on, in Walgreens? You know, why is Walgreens not allowed to sell own label band-aids? Like what is the yeah, what is the logic here? And it seems to me very hard to avoid. Like there's this sort of trope of people criticizing a tech company where they say, you dumbass, you just invented buses, or you just invest in restaurants, or you just invented vending machines. Well, here it's like the critics of Amazon have just discovered retail. Like that's what retail does. <laughs> they do white label. It's been around for 150 years. Like, welcome to Welcome to the retail industry. I mean, it's one of the very rare cases where I just think there's no coherent argument at all. Everything else I think there is, but you can argue about it. Um, but that is, you know, it's again, it's to that point. You can't own a platform and compete on it. Well, that's what Sears Roebuck did. That's what Macy's does. Second gripe is you just raise prices on me arbitrarily. You're, you know, one or two only players in town. I'm an Uber driver. It's a holiday season. Now you take 25% instead of 20. I'm an Amazon seller. It's a holiday season. Same deal, right? Wait till, they, wait till you discover what Walmart does. <laughs> well, <clears throat> you know, again, it's not saying break them up, but how do you provide protections for these suppliers where there's only one main employer um, or, or channel for what they're selling or, or the value they're creating, which, which I think is a lot of what you're getting at. It's interesting. So I wrote a piece recently about, so I've written sort of several pieces about regulation recently, and I wrote a piece specifically about break them up. And sort of the first half of the piece was saying, look, explaining why you know, most of the problems, half the problems we worry about are not competition problems, and most of the rest wouldn't actually get solved if we broke them up anyway. But the second piece was to sort of dig into, uh, and the analogy that I used was breaking at the breakup of AT&T. What AT- breaking up AT&T meant that you had competition in long distance, and if you were an equipment company, you now had competing buyers. But if you're a normal consumer in New York or Chicago, you had a national monopoly replaced by a local monopoly. There was still a local monopoly. And that was because actually local phone service is a natural monopoly. And you can't break it up. You have to do something else. Um, and so you then contrast that with what so breaking up AT&T was sort of a mixed success, actually. Um, now, you then contrast that with what Europeans, um, in fact, everybody outside America did with broadband in the early 2000s, which is to say, yes, a piece of copper going into your house is a natural monopoly. We can't like split it into five different parts. But what we can do is wholesale it. And so you have what was called unbundling the local loop. In the USA, it was called UNEP, 
where a broad, third-party broadband provider can put their own equipment into the telephone exchange, run fiber to that building, and then physically connect to the piece of copper that goes from your home to the telephone exchange. And the economics of that actually do make sense. And so as I'm you know, speaking to you in London now, I have the phone company, British Telecom, and a cable company, Virgin Media, and I have eight other companies that will sell me broadband on wholesale access over that piece of copper from British Telecom. And in fact, British Telecom has a minority of broadband supply in the UK because there's so many wholesale providers. And that's not the UK. That's like everybody else did that. Everyone. Everyone except America did that. Um, and the result is that everyone outside America has like massively competitive broadband markets and the USA kind of doesn't. Um, the other analogy that I think, example that I think is super interesting has just happened in the last couple of years is regulating credit card interchange. So when you swipe your card, um, Visa or MasterCard take a cut. And the merchant doesn't get a choice which card you use. And they also don't get to decide they're not going to have Visa and MasterCard. They've, like, they've got to take a card. This is why some people don't do Amex because Amex charges more. But they can't not take cards. And so they don't get to decide that they're going to give that company 3%. And that 3% pays for your credit card rewards. And the EU over the last five years said, hang on a second. This is monopoly or duopoly. And the price is now capped at, I think, 0.5%. And so European credit card reward, rewards have gone away, which is like tough. But, and I, but I think that's a much more interesting model to think about, for example, how advertising, how internet advertising works. You know, how does Facebook advertising work? How does Google advertising work? How does search work? The UK's competition authority has proposed that competing search engines should get access to clickstream data from Google search. And they're not going to get that's and that's not, and and, so, and the point is again this is this is a monopoly. How do we insert more competition? How can, how can you invite other competitors into the market, right? And and kind of open up data. For example, um, I think you were one of your articles talking about one of the UK commissions promoting that for Facebook opening up data for other social networks and that right. So how do you promote more literal direct competition from other say tech startups? Um, that's a great point. And, but, you know, and I think, and then the other thing we're talking about is protecting suppliers and producers, but all of these things require a very deep and nuanced understanding of not just platform business models at a high level, but each specific company. Um, and the irony of this is I was listening to a talk by Steve Ballmer a few years ago and he, or he, he had kind of exited from Microsoft at this point and was, was just dreaming about basketball. Um, so but, you know, his point was the regulators need to treat if you just pass one big law, it's, it's going to backfire. Right. You need to. These companies are so big and they're actually very unique. You need to have very targeted um, regulation to tweak their operations on an individual one by one basis. And otherwise, you, if you just try and have something apply to Facebook, Amazon, Google and Apple and Microsoft, it's just it's just never going to work. Yeah. So this is I mean, this is the analogy. I, mean, I thought it was useful to compare with, um, say, banks or indeed cards. So we regulate banks, but actually we don't. We regulate credit cards and mortgages and capital adequacy ratios and deposit insurance and futures and options and banknote printing. And like you could go to the Chicago Board of Options and ask them for their opinion on frozen concentrated orange juice futures, and they'll have opinions. But don't ask them um, what about redlining your mortgages, because like they read about it in the Wall Street Journal, but like that's not what they do. You know, the same thing in cars. I mean, the same thing in cars. You know, you can go to GM and say the cars have to be safer. You can also go to them and say you're screwing your suppliers, and we're going to do something about that. You can't tell them to stop criminals using cars. 
You can't tell them to put a congestion charge in Manhattan. You can't tell them to solve parking. You could tell them, we also, incidentally, we have speed limits, but we don't force the car companies to enforce the speed limits, although we could, which is interesting as a sort of piece of sociology. Why are, car, why are you allowed to sell a car that can drive at 150 miles an hour? Um, and, you know, we enforce um, safety measures in cars. But we don't force you to like sell your car and buy a new one that's got an airbag. And so there's an awful, there's like 45 different problems around cars. And some of it's on GM, some of it's on the city council, some of it is on, you know, financial, like loans to buy cars. Well, is that on GM or is that on the financial regulator? Um, maybe both. I don't know. I don't know how to, but you know, that's not the same question as, as, as car safety. Um, it's not for the end, NHTSC, whatever it's called, National Highway Safety Transit, whatever, you know, the one I mean, the one five letter acronym. I can remember, never remember what it is. But, you know, it's a different problem. And the same thing for banks, the same thing for food. You know, there's all sorts of regulation about food, but health inspection of restaurants is not the same as who decides whether, you know, hormones are safe for milk. Like, that's a different problem. And, or animal safety, or, you know, animal welfare, or, you know, slaughterhouse standards. They're all like different problems. And we're still at the phrase, sometimes I'm afraid at the stage of shouting tech. But, like, what is tech? It's like saying food or cars or banking. It doesn't mean anything. You have to actually go and find a specific problem and say, well, we're going to solve that specific problem. Um, very often that's not a national question. I mean, you know, one of the topics that comes up around Airbnb, for example, and I should say as former Andreessen Horowitz employee, I you know, financial interest in Airbnb. Um, but there are questions around Airbnb impact on house prices and the questions around, for example, people buying an apartment building and renting out all the apartments as Airbnb. And it's, you know, basically bypassing all sorts of existing regulation and creating situations that clearly not what anybody had in mind. And, you know, how do you regulate that? And the answer is you don't have like a big tech regulator that regulates how Facebook deals with Snapchat and also regulates Airbnb's vetting of who owns the love. Like that's not the same problem. You know, who deals with that Airbnb question? Well, London. And Venice and Barcelona. And you know, Venice says no one in the old town is, you know, you can't rent for more than so many weeks a year. Well, that's for the Barcelona City Council. Yeah, it's very localized. Well, some of it's localized, some of it's global, but it's different. They're different questions. And mm -hmm. you have to kind of get to that specificity of what actual problem are you going to try and solve here? And that's what I think we're lacking in, in kind of the US DOJ FTC. I feel like the EU probably has a little bit better handle on it from what I've seen from Miss Vesager and other kind of statements they've made, but I, I think the U.S. just kind of from a conceptual grasping of this is, is just uh, not there. I think there's a, there's a set of sort of specific challenges around, for example, a theory of antitrust that encompasses pricing, around a theory of privacy that basically there's no, is no privacy law. There's no law around free speech, for example. You know, there's just sort of only, but only for the government. So there's a sort of a lack of institutional cultural and institutional frameworks. There's a lack of sort of a cultural presumption that you regulate things. Um, I mean, in general, the FTC, you know, it's, it's funny to say this because in many ways, the Amer America is a very highly regulated, very, very highly regulated country. Um, but it's, it's sort of, it's something that sort of comes in jumps. You know, you get right. the FDA, yeah, big leaps, <laughs> and then you get you, and then you get the FCC. Twenty years later, you don't. There isn't, for whatever reason, whatever the history of it, there isn't that culture of just looking at a problem and saying, "Well, we'll just regulate that." You have to have like an existing regulatory agency for it. So that I think that's a, that's a challenge. Um, I think there's also um, 
you know, just the, the downside of this is one can, this can sound like sort of endless praises of the EU. The end, you know, it's like, you know, the old joke in the army that, you know, if it moves, salute it. And if it doesn't move, paint it. And that's sort of how the, um, you know, sort of how the EU thinks about companies, you know, <laughs> you know, if it moves, regulate it. And if it doesn't move, subsidize it. Um, and so that can, you know, that produces sort of just presumptions that, well, of course you would regulate that. And of course the answer to this is regulation. In the same way that, you know, you talk to an antitrust lawyer, then, you know, of course the answer is antitrust. You know, it's the, you know, the boy with a hammer that thinks everything is a nail. Um, I mean, I think the, we started this with, with TikTok and, you know, it would be good if some of the outcome of this in the next few years was this sort of systematic thinking about privacy regulation sort of see California trying to do that by default and the California sort of laws are drawn up in such a way that they kind of apply nationally anyway. Um, but the, prob- the flip side of this is, of course, California drew up, drew up its law on privacy in such a way that nobody has a clue what it means. Um, you're not allowed to sell my data. Okay, well, what does that mean? Facebook, does Facebook sell my data? Well, then my data doesn't leave Facebook. So are they selling it? <laughs> nobody knows. Nobody knows what it, no one knows what it means. We're going to go out with a bang here. Let's close out the media, the media conversation with, let me, just, let me just cite a couple stats to you. CBS, market cap, $18 billion, seven PE multiple. Disney, $237 billion market cap. They lost my, roughly 37 PE. They lost some money, so it's a little hard to calculate, but 37 PE. Netflix, $210 billion market cap, 80 PE multiple. Do you think Netflix is overvalued? So, look, I haven't been an equity analyst since sort of 2005 or thereabouts. Um, and so I don't do cash flow forecasts anymore. Um, you know, ob- statement of the blindingly obvious companies are worth a value, are worth a value of their future cash flow. And so a PE implies expectations that they will get much bigger than they are now. High PE says that's, what that's how much bigger they're going to get. It's a bet on future growth. Um, how does one think about what Netflix is doing? I think I used you to compare Netflix with Sky in the UK, which many of your, your audience may not be familiar with. What Sky did was they said, well, there's now there's this satellite thing and football is free. And if we buy football and then we can sell it on satellite, which no one has ever done before, we might be able to charge massively more for football than anyone imagines it's worth. We might be able to sell football. First of all, I was like, whoa, whoa, what are you talking about? <laughs> Secondly, we might be able to like, pay massively more for it than anybody has ever thought it was worth. And so they created this vast new business paying for football and then selling it um, at you know, $100 a month. And you know, half of the UK signs up to Sky and you know, they buy the football pack. And there's a pretty sort of fire hose of money going into, into the Premier League. Premiership League, which is why it's the most popular football league on a um, much more than the um, NFL in the USA. Um, and um, there's a sort of a parallel point to about Netflix, which is that Netflix says that there's this new distribution channel, which means we can go direct and we can build our own revenue platform, our own purchasing platform into that. And we could buy drama and sell it at massively more than anybody thought you could before. And therefore we can spend massively more and you get this flywheel of spending more money to get more and more shows and better and better shows. And so, you know, the amount of money that's spent on TV is now sort of massively more than it was in the past. I mean, I, you remember the, the, there was this um, anniversary of Miami Vice recently, you know, the TV show. And you go and look it up. Miami Vice was showing against something called Falcon Crest that nobody remembers now. It's a, it's a soap opera. 
And the other competition was a show about a Texas millionaire who was a private eye in his spare time. Uh, are you kidding me? Can you imagine those shows being on primetime now, like those being the shows? And that was TV. Um, and so Netflix realized that you could spend massively more on much more and much better TV than anyone had done before. I'm not going to belabor the point. The point is I haven't mentioned technology once. Or a software company, TV company. It's a TV company that's using this new technology as a crowbar to break into technology with a new distribution model and a new revenue model. But it's a TV company. Is it going to work? I don't know. Ask a TV person. What is their maximum potential audience in the next 10 years? How many people in Europe, in Latin America, in South Asia, in Indonesia are going to sign up to Netflix? I don't know. Ask a TV person. Ask, a TV, ask someone at Star TV. You know, they know. They've got a view on that. I have no clue what the addressable market for Netflix is in, in India. You know, it's not, as we said earlier, you know, it's not a billion people. It might be 10 or 20 million people. I have no, no clue. You know, add that and run that model up all the way up. What is the world's first global TV channel worth? How, much show, how many shows do you need to buy? How much local, how many local shows? What, local, what are your local operations? How many subscribers do you get? How many customers does it get? Do they get if, if Netflix in, you know, in years' time, if Netflix has 500 billion customers, what's that worth? So say, you know, the average customer isn't spending $10, so the average customer is saying spending $2. I don't know. What, Indian, what is an Indian customer going to spend? A dollar, $2. I don't know. You can run that model. You know, I'm sure there's a way you can run that model that gets you to Netflix's share price. No, it's, it's a great point. Um, I, I think in your, your Sky example, just the infrastructure to do satellite versus over-the-top you know, streaming versus... Well, it wasn't their satellite. So it was even cheaper. Yeah. So, I, 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 you know, me personally, I think Netflix, just the, the competitive landscape relative to, say, YouTube, for example, right? Would I want to own Netflix or YouTube would be another way to talk about it, right? I'm taking YouTube every day of the week just because of that supply side network effect where it's just a race to spend more money on content, Netflix. And yes, they were the first one, but Disney Plus getting 100 million subscribers in what, nine months of launch? Yes, it's Disney, but still, you know, I think Netflix is still under 200 million subs. There's no technology there. There's, let me rephrase that because that's going to sound really stupid. There is, <laughs> let me, because actually there's kind of a super interesting point here. Um, if you're a retailer, the store has to be great, but that doesn't mean you're in the real estate business. Now your website has to be great. If you're an online, re if you're a retailer and you now you have a website, the website has to be great. That doesn't make you a tech company. It's still about the bags and the merchandising and the customer acquisition and the advertising. Netflix, the website has to be great. And maybe the website's better. Maybe the streaming's better. I didn't really know. Maybe it's better. Who cares? It's still about the TV shows. Netflix was, if there was nothing on Netflix except, re except reruns of Cheers and Friends, would it be at a P of 80? No. <laughs> so that just tells you it's not a software company. It's a TV company. Exactly. Let's end it on that point. Funny enough, Amazon Luxury just launched this morning. I know you have some thoughts on that. It's a con contradiction in terms. <laughs> yes, right? An oxymoron. It's, a, it's like the Social Democratic Republic of Germany. <laughs> love it, Benedict. We'd love to have you back on and, and join us. This is really great. Thanks so much for spending the time. Thank you.